Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good. Hi there. <laughs> hey, um, if it is your first time here on a Sunday morning, we, this morning we are in part four out of five in a series that we've done each of the last few summers. It's called God in the Movies. And if you have missed the last few messages from this series this summer, it's very easy to catch up. Just go to westbulls.com. You can click on the media tab and get all caught up. But this morning... In light of us talking about movies, I just have to share something with you guys real quickly. It wasn't too long ago that our six-year-old daughter, Lainey, she sat down on the couch to watch a movie, and that movie, it was so intriguing, and it was so inspiring, and it was so suspenseful at times that I found myself right there on the couch with her. And I mean, there were moments where I was laughing, and, and then there were moments where there were tears in my eyes, and it was just this incredibly gripping, epic story. And that movie was Tinkerbell. It was Tinkerbell, and it was actually, it was so gripping that at one point, Lainey got up off the couch, and she said, Dad, we have to go, or I'm going to be late for school. And I just thought, I mean, Tinkerbell is about to save spring, okay? So Jeffco schools can wait. This is big, and so I think that just speaks to the power and the connection that we have with movies. And at the very least, it speaks to what happens to a guy who lives in a house full of women. You know, you just, you like Tinkerbell. And so, anyhow, this morning we are not talking about Tinkerbell. I tried to get it in there, and it didn't work. Um, but this morning, we are going to talk about a movie that I know a number of you have seen. It's called Wreck-It Ralph, and if you have not seen it, here is the five-and-a-half-minute version of Wreck-It Ralph. Take a look. Here's everything you need to know about Wreck-It Ralph in 5 minutes, 19 seconds. In an arcade, there is a game. In that game, there is a 9-foot man. Each day, that man smashes buildings. His name is Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. By day, Ralph and the rest of the characters in the arcade perform their duties within their games. But when the arcade closes, the characters are free to travel between games, socializing and supporting one another. Ralph attends Bad Guys Anonymous, a support group for video game villains. If you are bad guy, but this does not mean you're bad guy. Right. I'm sorry, I just, I, you lost me there. But back in his own game, Ralph is an outcast. When Ralph learns he hasn't been invited to a party thrown by the game's hero, Fix-It Felix, he shows up anyway, hoping to be accepted. But he is not. Only good guys win medals, and you, sir, are no good guy. I could be a good guy if I wanted to, and I could win a medal. Uh-huh. And when you do, come and talk to us. In search of a medal, Ralph enters a hyper-realistic first-person shooter game of the variety parents swear they'll never let their kids play. There he nabs a medal and flees the game in a hurry. But in his haste, he lands in a racing game called Sugar Rush, a land made completely of candy. Having lost hold of his medal in the landing, he finds that one of the Sugar Rush characters has it, and she won't relinquish it unless Ralph helps her out. That is my medal! That's why I was climbing the tree, it's mine, it's my, it's precious to me. Well that thing is, it's my, it's my ticket to a better life. Yeah, well now it's my ticket. What the? Say it, chump! Like Ralph, Vanellope von Schweetz is also an outcast in her game, not because she is a villain, but because her coding is broken and she often glitches or malfunctions during play. Vanellope just wants to race with the other players, but they never let her participate. There's no way that I am racing with a glitch. 
Ralph sympathizes with Penelope's situation and he helps her build a race cart. But Sugar Rush is ruled by a ruthless racer with a dark secret. King Candy, who is also a master at changing game coding, can't allow the truth about Vanellope to come out, so he intervenes, telling Ralph that if Vanellope races, she will destroy both herself and the game. And when they see her glitching and then twitching and just being herself, they'll think our game is broken. We'll be put out of order for good. When the game's plug is pulled, she'll die with it. Ralph demolishes Vanellope's cart and leaves Sugar Rush. Having returned to his own game, Ralph discovers that he can see the Sugar Rush arcade game. He realizes that Vanellope is actually supposed to be the queen of Sugar Rush, not an outcast, and that King Candy is actually a jealous character who wiped everyone in Sugar Rush's memory. Determined to help his young friend return to her rightful place within the game, Ralph goes back into Sugar Rush to deal with King Candy. Explain something to me. If Vanellope was never meant to exist, then why is her picture on the side of the game console? But rather than be destroyed, King Candy turns into a mutant cyborg. I'm now the most powerful virus in the arcade! <laughs> I can take over any game I want. I should thank you, but it'd be more fun to kill you. <laughs> The Sugar Rush world is being overtaken by the Cybugs. Ralph hatches a plan to save Sugar Rush by dropping thousands of Mentos into a lake of soda. The resultant explosion creates a beacon of light to which the Cybugs are drawn, like a candy bug zapper. You fools! Why are you going into the law? Oh. Oh. No! 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 Go into the law! King Candy Bug and the Cybugs are destroyed in the Fizz explosion, and the game coding is repaired, Vanellope is revealed as Princess Vanellope, and the memories of the other Sugar Rush characters are restored. Now I remember. All hail the rightful ruler of Sugar Rush, Princess Vanellope. <gasps> Ralph returns with Felix to his own game, now hailed as a hero, and welcome at all the parties. Well, I have to make a little confession. Um, I'm up here talking about Wreck-It Ralph this morning, which means I should probably know that movie inside and out. But I've actually only seen it from start to finish all the way through twice. And so there's, there are parts of the movie that that was a good refresher for me. But thank you to the combination of the attention span of a six-year-old daughter and the attention span of a two-year-old daughter and the magic of pressing a button on a remote and starting a movie over and over and over and over and over and over 
We've seen the first 20 to 30 minutes of Wreck-It Ralph about 84 times, okay? And I think tucked into that first 20 to 30 minutes of Wreck-It Ralph, there is a scene that just portrays this dilemma that every single one of us faces. And I think that that scene is a perfect starting point for talking about that very dilemma this morning. Why don't we take a look? Question, Ralph. We've been asking you to bat it on for years now, and tonight you, you finally show up. Why is that? I don't know. I just felt like coming. I mean, I suppose it has something to do with the fact that, uh, well, today is the 30th anniversary of my game. Happy anniversary, Ralph. Thanks, Satan. Uh, it's Satin, actually. Got it. But here's the thing. I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. Can't mess with the program, Ralph. You're not going turbo, are you? Turbo? No, I'm not going turbo. Come on, guys. Is it turbo to want a friend? Or a medal? Or a piece of pie every once in a while? Is it turbo to want more out of life? Yes. Ralph, Ralph, we get it. But we can't change who we are. And the sooner you accept that, the better off your game and your life will be. Did you notice what Ralph said there? He said, I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. And I think like you and like me, Ralph walks around with this image in his head of this ideal version of himself. And that ideal version of ourselves usually doesn't have any ugly stuff and we don't get anything wrong and everything is just perfect, isn't it? But the problem for Ralph and the problem for us is that we have this fallen side and his peers said it. They said, you can't mess with the program. We are who we are. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? This fallen side of us is called our sinful human nature. And that sinful human nature, whether we like it or not, it has some ugly stuff. And we get some things wrong. And it's never perfect. And that's the dilemma that we face constantly. And that's the dilemma we're going to talk about this morning. Because we go through life and we have this image of, of the ideal picture of who we are. But we have to live with the real picture of who we are, don't we? It's a dilemma every single one of us has to walk through. And I think it's a dilemma that we don't deal with very well. I'm not talking about this ideal picture of you where you're like a superhero and you daydream about that at night. Or for me, it's the ideal Nathan is tall, dark, and handsome, but... In reality, I just had to settle for handsome. I mean, like, and that was not supposed to be funny, but thanks anyway. I really feel good about myself, you guys. But I mean this ideal picture of ourselves that I'm a good person, and I can only do good things, and I only want to show people the good about me. And yet, the second that we, that we do something that we'd consider bad, we start to question things, don't we? We question our value, you know, we question who we are. We question whether other people could love us, or maybe whether God could love us. And that's the, that's the dilemma we face. But I just don't think we deal with it very well. In fact, I think we do something else. It's a dilemma that we try to get around. And the proof of that is in the example Ryan gave us last week. You know, he, he talked about that moment where you're in the car, whether it's just by yourself or with family or boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. And you just start arguing and start fighting and nitpicking at each other. And everything's chaos. 
And then what happens the second the car doors open and you're in public? You just smile, right? Because we want to show in public, we want to be the ideal image of who we are. And we don't want anybody to see the real image behind who we are. And so even though this is a dilemma that I think we try to get around, there's another truth that we have to face about the very dilemma, and I think you'll see it in this next scene here. Let's take a look. Look, there's all of us at the top. Each apartment is everyone's favorite flavor. Norwood's is red velvet. Guilty. <laughs> and lemon for Lucy, rum cake for Jean, and for Felix. Hey, Mary, um, what, what's the flavor of that mud that I'm stuck in there? Uh, chocolate. Not, never been real fond of chocolate. <laughs> well, I did not know that. One other little thing. I hate to be picky, but, you know, this angry little guy here oh might be a lot happier if you put him up here with everyone else. See that? Look at that smile. No, no, no. You see, Ralph, there's no room for you up here. <laughs> well, what about this? We can make room here. We can take turns. Easy. <gasps> How about we just eat the cake? Hang on. Felix needs to be on the roof because he's about to get his medal. Well, then how about we just take that medal and give it to Ralph for once? Would that be the end of the world, Gene? Now you're just being ridiculous. Only good guys win medals. And you, sir, are no good guy. I could be a good guy if I wanted to, and I could win a medal. Uh-huh. And when you do, Come and talk to us. And then would you finally let me be on top of the cake with you guys? If you want a medal, we'd let you live up here in the penthouse. But it will never happen because you're just the bad guy who wrecks the building. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm <laughs> Yes, you are. All right, Gene. You know what? I'm gonna win a medal. Oh, I am gonna win a medal. The shiniest medal this place has ever seen. A medal that will be so good that it will make Felix's medals wet their pants. And good night. Thank you for the party. Is he serious? Oh, please. Where's a bad guy gonna win a medal? Of course he's not serious. Do you notice what happened there? I mean, here's Ralph, and he's just trying to be a good guy. And he's just trying to show everybody he can be good. And he's just trying to emphasize that he's good. And yet, what, what happens? He wrecks everything. And there is a truth in that scene that we have to face. That even though that is a dilemma that we try to get around, it's a dilemma that we have to go through. This dilemma of trying to do and be good, and yet we do the opposite. We have to go through it. We can't get around it. A couple weeks ago, um, our two-year-old, True, she saw our six-year-old, Lainey. We have this glass face on our TV screen, and Lainey was cleaning off some fingerprints. She had a rag, and she was using the spray bottle, and she's wiping these prints off. And True, I think maybe the thought in her head was just, I want to do that too. I want to help. And so True grabbed a rag and a bottle of something else, and we didn't discover what that bottle of something else was until it was too late. It was a bottle of mustard all over the TV screen. And in the process of trying to do something good, it kind of wrecked things. And you know what? 
I think that's with us at two years old. I think it's there before, but it doesn't go away. And that's the hard news for us. It doesn't go away. You don't grow out of it when you grow out of diapers and you don't get through it when you get through puberty and you don't trade it in for a career or a family one day. It stays with you. In fact, there was an author who passed away this last spring. His name is Brendan Manning. And he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And the ragamuffin gospel, in there, he says something that I think just hits the nail on the head for all of us. Listen to what he said about himself when he wrote the book at 56 years of age. He said, when I get honest, I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good, and I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I trust, and yet I'm still suspicious. I'm honest, and I still play games. I mean, that about sums it up, doesn't it, for all of us? Because we have this inner desire to do good, but we do the opposite. We wreck things, just like Ralph. And if that's you, and you feel like that's your experience, I'm just here to tell you this morning that we are actually all in great company because you're sitting in a room full of people with that same experience. But the Apostle Paul, in a letter to the first century church, he described himself going through this exact situation. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 15. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen for you. But before we jump in there, Here's what I just need you to know, because I discovered something as I was going through this, and it was this, that if that's your experience, this idea of wanting to do good but doing the opposite, it's not a bad thing, and you're not a bad person for that, and it's not a weird thing. It's a common thing. So let's take a look. We're in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. He's talking about God's law that shows him and tells him and shows us and tells us how to live. As it is, It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Paul's saying, look, deep down, I really desire to do good. I really do, and I really desire to be good and and show people the good in me. But just before this passage, he talks about something inside us that springs to life. And we do the opposite of the good we want to do. And he says, it's sin. Well, he goes on. He says, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. It's wordy. But you know what I think Paul was talking about? The first time I read this, I thought Paul was talking about the game of golf. Okay? Because how many of you in here golf? I don't mean like 
on video games. I mean, you actually go to a golf course and you put yourself through that and you pay money for it. Okay, because the first time 12 years ago, I stepped onto a golf course and I walked up to the tee and I went to swing the ball and in my head, I have everything I want to do. I mean, everybody's got advice, right? Hold it like this. Make sure you don't, you know, all, all these different rules for a swing. I don't even remember them because I didn't care, okay? But I tried to do all these things. And what happens when you try to do all that? Usually you do the opposite. And so I get up there. I thought I did everything that I was supposed to do. And the ball just flies 10 feet off into the grass. And so I adjusted. I thought, okay, well, if the first time I hit it, it went that way. Then if I rotate this way, it'll shank that way down the fairway. But the problem was the second time it went off into the trees over here. And I just, I remember after about six, seven times of doing this, I was done. And I was so frustrated. I just thought, you know what? I didn't want to be good at golf anyway. This whole golf thing, it's probably just some fad that society's going through. And, you know, it'll be over in like 10 years anyway. And I was just so mad and I sat down frustrated because I spent all this time trying to do something and I could not carry it out. Now, that was a game. And I can get over when I'm trying to play a game and I wreck things. When I'm trying to do good and I do the opposite, I can get over that. And I think we all could get over that. But I think we all have these areas of life that are very serious to us. You know, being a parent, being a spouse, being a student, being an employee, being a boss, being a Christian. And in those areas, when we try to do good and we turn around and we wreck things, it's a little harder to deal with, isn't it? In fact, it kind of feels like this next scene. Take a look. Hello? Anybody home? Felix? Mary? Well, you actually went and did it. Gene, where is everybody? They're gone. After Felix went to find you and then didn't come back, everyone panicked and abandoned ship. But, but I'm here now. It's too late, Ralph. Litwack's pulling our plug in the morning. But never let it be said that I'm not a man of my word. The place is yours, Ralph. Enjoy. Gene, wait, wait. Listen, this is not what I wanted. Well, what did you want, Ralph? I don't know, I, I just... I was just tired of living alone in the garbage. Well, now you can live alone in the penthouse.
Well, it's a familiar scene, isn't it? I mean, we know that feeling in the middle of our failure to do and be good. It's a feeling we know too well. You know, and here's Ralph. All he was trying to do was be good, just trying to get a medal. And yet, once again, he wrecked everything. You know, he hurt a little girl's feelings along the way. Their game is going to be shut down because of Ralph. And that's a feeling we can relate to. You know, it's what happens when you try to give somebody an encouraging word or maybe help them and point them out. And instead, you're the bad guy. It's what happens when parents, you make a decision that you know is best for your kids, but it just makes everything worse. It's what happens when we try to, what we look at every single week, when we try to love God and love others, and yet it feels like we do the opposite. In fact, Paul, Paul talks about what that's like. If we keep reading, if you go to verse 21, he says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. I mean, that just, that captures that feeling right there. That it feels like such a battle to try to even do or be good. And when you fail, it feels like prison. And a lot of times it takes us to this place of despair. This dilemma we face causes us to despair. And then Paul continues, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. We know that phrase, don't we? Because you've used that phrase and I've used that phrase. Maybe not the word wretched, but we've said things like, how could I do something so dumb? How could I screw up like that? I'm a failure. And what happens is we walk around and we carry this shame and we feel this condemnation. And then you come to church and you discuss and you talk about and you learn and you sing about the joy and the victory of the Christian life. But if you're like me, you've had moments where that felt kind of empty. Because you sit there and think, yeah, but I'm, I'm an adult. I should know better. Or I'm a parent. I should know better. Or I'm a spouse. I should know better. Or I'm a boss. Or I'm a Christian. I should, see, I should be beyond this struggle. You know what? That was my experience. If you looked at my life, there were numerous moments in the last few years well, that was my experience. Because a few years ago, I had somebody in my life that just drove me absolutely crazy. And I'm sure I'm the only one in here who has people in my life like that, right? But I had somebody just drove me nuts. I mean, I, I would see them and I could feel my blood pressure just rising. You know, and I would go somewhere and if I knew they were there, I mean, the whole place would feel different because I felt like I had to avoid, and it was like hide and seek, and I had to just stay away from where they were because they drove me nuts. And I remember I could be in a room with them, and it was just like 
You're just doing this. You're just trying to stay on the opposite side of the room. Drove me absolutely crazy. And the whole time I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm a youth leader at a church. And the whole time I was thinking, well, if a junior high or a high schooler came to me with that dilemma, I know exactly what I'd tell them to do. I'd tell them to go talk to them. And yet inside, I knew I was supposed to go talk to them. I knew the good I was supposed to do. I just did the opposite. And I'd come up with things to make myself feel better, like, eh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Oh, I don't want there to be tension. And I'd do the opposite. I would do the opposite of the good I knew I should do. Because this person just drove me so crazy. Now, if we could just stop there for a second. If we could just stop there. There's something about the context surrounding what Paul is saying when he says this that I think is a a valuable reminder for all of us. And there's something we need to learn from who Paul is as he's talking about this exact dilemma in his own life. I mean, I want you to think about this, okay? Paul, this is Paul. Paul's letters to various churches became books in the Holy Bible. So here is this guy who's a biblical author. Here is a guy that got knocked off a horse and he heard God's voice audibly from the heavens. And he had perhaps the most powerful conversion that any of us has ever seen. And while God had all the disciples in one place doing something, he looked at Paul and he said, you, Paul, are my chosen instrument to take this message to the world. And I look at that, and I don't know about you, but that's kind of encouraging to me. Because I would look at somebody like that and I would think, with that kind of conversion, and with that kind of calling, and with that kind of experience and the position that God has him in, I mean, I'd expect somebody like that to be perfect. I mean, I'd expect them to be good and not struggle with doing the opposite. And then on top of it, they think that Paul wrote this, this letter to the Romans in which he describes this very dilemma. They think he wrote that 20 to 25 years after this powerful conversion. So here you have a guy who's had a relationship, a powerful one, with Jesus Christ for 20 to 25 years. I mean, I look at that and I think, he's probably past all this, this struggle. And so, I don't know, maybe it's this horrible thing in me that when I'm struggling, it's kind of nice to look next to me and see somebody else struggling. And especially when you see that it's Paul, the one that we hold up as the model of following Jesus. I mean, that gives me some encouragement. But what's even more encouraging is what Paul says next because we learned something here. Look at what he says next. If you go back to the beginning of verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And if he stopped right there, that would be pretty hopeless. But there's an answer, isn't there? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, this dilemma that we despair over, guess what? I don't think Paul's despairing over it all. I think he's rejoicing over it. Because Paul's looking at this dilemma 
And he's saying, man, I want to do good, but I just can't do it. I am wretched. That is a wretched place to be. And it's so wretched that I need rescue. And his excitement comes from the fact that he's been rescued. And you have been rescued. And I have been rescued. And I think in this moment, Paul recognizes something that we need a reminder of. And that's this. That Christ's power begins not in the good that we do, but in the rescue that we need. Christ's power begins not in the good that we do, but in the rescue that we need. And so it is pointless for us to sit there in despair over the good that we're not capable of carrying out anyway. Paul's saying the victory and the joy of Christian life is not in the good you do. It's in the fact that you've been rescued and we've been rescued. What Paul's getting at is that the starting point of Christ's mighty power has nothing to do with anything we do and it's got everything to do with what Jesus did. And as I thought about that, and as I, that truth just kind of wrapped around my heart and God penetrated my heart with that truth, something happened. I started realizing that for a long time, my relationship with Christ has been about what I do and not about the rescue that I so desperately need. And I think if, that, if we could just wrap our heads around that truth and we could ask God to just penetrate our hearts with that truth, well, we'd start seeing ourselves differently. Instead of thinking I have to be this righteous person who does no wrong, I'd see that I am a wretched person who needs and has received rescue. But it goes outside of us. You know what happens? Is it starts to affect how we look at other people. And that person in your life that just drove you crazy for days and weeks and months on end, well, you start to look at them different. And you start to see that they're not a righteous person who can do no wrong. They're a wretched person in need of rescue as well. And if we could just get our heads around that, let me tell you, the liberation that comes from that, the freedom that comes from that, well, it's something that I just, I don't really know how to explain unless you've experienced it. But I think one of the closest things to it is how I felt when I left that golf course 12 years ago. Because I sat down and I was so frustrated after like my eighth shot into the, into the tall grass. I was just so mad. I was like, I'm not even going to get the ball. I don't care about it. Okay? This, the sport is dumb. Anybody who plays it, they're just, they're going in circles. There's no future in it. And I sat down and the dad of a guy who was with us, he, he came up and he said, hey, I found your ball. It was in the mud over there. I was like, thanks for the reminder. That was really cool of you. But I said, I don't need it. You can keep it. I'm not going to be needing it. And he said, well, would you take one more shot? And I just thought, great. More advice on how to swing a golf club. Can't wait. He said, are you enjoying yourself? I said, nope. <laughs> I'm just here for the guy who's getting married because he wanted us here. He said, well, if you're not enjoying yourself, if there's no joy in any of this, then maybe stop trying to do everything that they're telling you to do when you swing. Just set down the ball and just swing. 
So I sat down the ball, cleared my head, and I just took a swing. And I am not kidding. This ball rocketed straight into the air, straight down the fairway. And by the time it was all said and done, this ball had traveled, I'm not kidding, 600 inches. <laughs> 50 feet, folks. And you know what? When you've been shanking them 10 feet this way and 20 feet this way, 50 feet, that's a win. And that's victory. 17 yards. It was actually the last time I ever swung a golf club because I just got to keep that in my mind. <laughs> Going out on top, all right? <laughs> but all of that, I mean, I sat there and I thought, wow, I can enjoy this. And there is some joy in this. Maybe there is something to this golf thing. And all of that was because somebody went, he found this golf ball, and he rescued it out of the mud, and he shifted my perspective a little bit away from what I'm trying to do. And so this morning, usually I send you out of here and I want you to do something. This morning, I don't want you to do something. I want you to remember something. And that something is that we've been rescued and that Christ's power begins not in the good we do, but in the rescue we need and the rescue we've received. On your way out, right out there on the table, there is a box of golf balls. And I don't know that we have enough for every single person here today. And so if you're here as a family, I'd ask that you just take one as a family so that everybody can get one. But I want you to take a golf ball. And the thing is, these golf balls are not fresh out of the package, okay? These golf balls were actually rescued off of a property that somebody in our congregation right here, Chuck Pennington, has. The thing is, Chuck Pennington's property is not a golf course. It's an auto shop next to a golf course. And these golf balls that you're going to get this morning, well, they're the result of golfers who maybe just tried to do a little too much when they swung. And these golf balls landed on Chuck's property. And Chuck goes around his property and he picks these up and he just saves them. And I just thought, that is the reminder I need. I've been rescued. You've been rescued. We've been rescued. And that is where Christ's power begins. And maybe what's fueling this for me is I just look around and I just wonder, is that the message that the world gets? First of all, is that the message we have about ourselves? But second, is that the message the world gets when they look at our lives? I mean, real quick, look around the room. Just go ahead, turn around, look around the room. I want you to think about the number of people you come into contact with on a daily basis and on a weekly basis. Now multiply that by everybody in this room. The reach that we have with the message that we have is incredible. But what message do we have? Do people look at our lives and think that you have to be a righteous person who does no wrong to have a relationship with Christ, to be welcome in a church? I hope not. I hope that when people look at my life and our lives, that they look at us 
and they think, wow, they're wretched. And that's where I'm at. And we've been rescued. Christ's power begins not in the good we do, but in the rescue we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you're a God who is so patient with us, even in the middle of us struggling to do the good that we so badly want to do. And thank you for planting this truth in our hearts that it has nothing to do with anything we do and everything to do with what Jesus Christ did. Will you keep that truth on our hearts constantly? One, so that we can have that for ourselves, but two, so that we can share that with the world. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. Have a great week.